Let's hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning with verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid." Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Mark chapter 15. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the solemn truth that it relates to us. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to take the advantage, the profit, the comfort from the truth that Christ died and was buried. Help us to understand what it means. Help us to understand what it means for us. And, O Lord, may we live as those who have died and been buried and indeed have risen again with Christ. May we no longer have anything to do with the deathly life that we had before we were born again. But may we walk in newness of life according to a new principle with a new power in union with a risen Savior. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We acknowledged this morning when we repeated the creed that Christ died and was buried. That is what our current passage tells us. We saw, of course, the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, how Jesus died, and then here, we are told how he was taken down from the cross, how he was laid in a tomb, and how there were people who were aware of all of this, people who witnessed this. We have the question in our catechism as well. Question 41 asks, why was Christ buried? And it's a very short answer. The answer is simply to show thereby that he was really dead. Now, there's more that can be said in Ursinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Zacharias Ursinus, you may remember, is one of the principal authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. So his commentary should be very illuminating since he's responsible for the document. In his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he says that there are seven things you can say about why Christ was buried. And to show that he was really dead is only the first of those things. But it is something that I think Mark emphasizes with 
some of the choice of language, and some of the things that he is narrating. Now, one of the reasons it's important to emphasize that Christ was really dead is that there have been people, unbelievers, who have developed a swoon theory. Well, Christ is taken down from the cross, and, you know, pain, blood loss, trauma, he's fainted. Well, they lay him in a nice, cool tomb, and he recovers, he revives. So there really was no miracle of death and resurrection. There was just somebody who needed a break. Well, that does not stand up if you actually read the gospel narratives. That is shown to be a ridiculous theory by the details. But Mark does put a certain emphasis on the reality of the death of Christ. And that's important for us. It's important for us not just to highlight the historicity, the genuine factual nature of this miracle. That's important. It's also important because the wages of sin is death. If Christ didn't really die for us, he didn't really take those wages. He didn't really pay the full penalty of sin. He didn't really do what he needed to do in order for us to be saved. And then it's also important from a standpoint of its spiritual lesson. We are to die with Christ and rise again to newness of life. That's not just a faint. That's not just something that looks like death but isn't really. We are genuinely supposed to die. Paul says to the Colossians, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, we understand that that's a reference to dying to sin, but we're not supposed to sort of die to sin. We're not supposed to almost die to sin. We genuinely, truly, absolutely die to sin. So for all of those reasons, the reality of the death of Christ is significant. Well, you notice Mark emphasizes that in verse 37. He says that Jesus breathed his last. The centurion saw that and identified him as the Son of God. And then Mark adds this note. There were also women looking on from afar. Now, these women are going to come up again in the narrative. Two of them are going to see not just the death of Christ, they're going to witness the burial of Christ. And then they're going to come and they're going to be the witnesses of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene is famously the first person to know that Jesus has risen from the dead, the first person to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, Mark hasn't really said a lot about these women up until this point. He says Mary Magdalene for two reasons. One, he's distinguishing Mary Magdalene from the other people named Mary. We are told that there were multiple women looking on. We don't know how many women, but if you compare all the gospel accounts, four of them were named Mary. At least four of them were named Mary. So you have to specify a little bit. When you say Mary, you need to specify that it's Mary Magdalene because there's a lot of other candidates to choose from. He also says Mary Magdalene because he seems to be taking for granted that his readers will know who Mary Magdalene is. Well, if you look up the references to Mary Magdalene, you find that this was a woman 
out of whom the Lord Jesus had cast seven demons. She was possessed by seven unclean spirits, and the Lord Jesus delivered her from that. Well, she became a follower of his. Now, there's also Mary, the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph. Now, this is an interesting point, and it shows you how the same names got used again and again. Because just by this description, that could actually be Jesus's mother, because she was also the mother of James and of Joseph, according to Mark chapter 6. It's probably a different woman. It's, they're probably not identifying the mother of Jesus with reference to his siblings. You know, you'd typically identify her with reference to the most important of the children. But what that means then is that you have another woman named Mary who also has at least two sons whose names overlap with the names of Mary's sons. But this has been found when archaeologists and historians have gone back and they've looked at name lists, they've looked at cemetery inscriptions, they've looked at other places where people's names appear, they find that in this period of time, there was a pretty small group of names that Jewish people were using to name their kids. And so one person guessed that close to 50% of the girls born around this time were named Mary. So it's not a surprise to run into four Marys or more. It was a very popular name. It was very common. Well, James, of course, um, is Jacob, and that you can understand why in, in Judea, Jacob is a very popular name. So it's not unexpected. It's not a historical anomaly to find these repeated names, to find that in two families, you could have Mother Mary and siblings James and Joseph. Then there's another woman named Salome, and we really don't know anything about her except what is said here and in the parallel portions of the Gospels. But Mark brings this in here, and he's telling us that among the followers of Jesus, because you notice what it says in verse 41, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's quite a crowd of women. And in one way, you could say that the women are doing better here than the men. Where are his disciples, his intimate friends, well, they've scattered and fled. But who's at the crucifixion? Who's watching? The women. Now, there are other people. There's other parts of the crowd there. There have been people making fun of Christ, the chief priests and the scribes and so forth. But here are women, and they can't do anything. They can't help, but they're there. They're watching, and they are not making fun of him. You know, there are situations in life where there's not much we can do except bear witness, except be present. That was all they could do. But they did that, and they're honored in the Bible for doing that. You have all of these horrible things happening at the crucifixion. You have all of these people participating in the horrible things in horrible ways. But then there's some contrasts. There's a centurion who recognizes. In the moment of death, he recognizes who Jesus really is. And then he bears witness to Pilate that Jesus had died. There's these women who witnessed sympathetically. If there was nothing more they could do, they didn't turn away. They didn't get scared. They didn't cut and run. They stayed. They stayed till the end. 
And then you have Joseph of Arimathea, who gathers his courage and gets permission to take down the body and have Christ's corpse buried. What a contrast to all the people who participated. What a contrast to all the people who made the crucifixion happen. Now, the centurion, we'll look at him in a moment. But before we move on from the women, I just want to say a couple of things about this. One, it has always been the case that Christ has had followers who were women. You can see a multitude, many other women, had come up with him to Jerusalem. And as I said, they are doing better than the men. Now, obviously, in the church, you want there to be families. You want there to be whole, integrated units. But I've been in a lot of churches where there were more women than men. In one sense, you can say that's a problem. But it's not a problem with the women. It's a problem with the men who aren't coming. Just to be clear, just to go on the record with that one. Sometimes, especially perhaps in our own day, you'll hear people say that Christianity is misogynistic, that we hate women, we don't value women, that we despise women, etc., etc. And of course, those accusations are reasonably likely to be brought against a church like ours, which maintains that only men are eligible for ordination, that only men can be deacons or elders or pastors. But I think misogyny is the wrong category to use for that. If we're following what scripture says, then that's called faithfulness. Now that's not to say that we couldn't have inadequate motivations, that we couldn't be inappropriate in some other way, but the bottom line ought to be biblical faithfulness. And let me say this, if we're being biblically faithful in not ordaining women to office, then we need also to be biblically faithful to be like Jesus and to make sure that the women of our congregation know that they are valued and appreciated. May they never hear or see anything in the officers of the church that would make them think that we are against women, that we think they're inferior, that we think any idiotic thing along those lines. I hope none of the sisters here would ever get that impression from me. And certainly, you will not get that impression from the Lord Jesus. These women are dignified as his followers. These women are witnesses of his death, his burial, and as we'll see, Lord willing, down the road of his resurrection. These women ministered to him. There was something they could do for Jesus. And they did it when he was in Galilee. And now they've followed him to Jerusalem. And they've run out of things that they can do. They've run out of practical ways to help. But they're still there. Their commitment, their love, their loyalty is beyond reproach. Well, if you find a person who is that committed, who is that loyal to Christ... It doesn't matter whether that's a man or a woman. That is a person of worth. That is a person to be honored as God has honored them by including them in the scriptures.
we could easily spend more time there. But we also have a centurion to deal with and Joseph of Arimathea. So let's move on to what happens. We read the context there where the centurion recognized who Jesus was. Well, when Joseph comes and says to Pilate, may I please have the body of Christ? Pilate is surprised that Jesus was already dead. Well, he'd been on the cross for about six hours. Sometimes people were on the cross for days before they died. In fact, a little later on, the Jewish historian Josephus, he asked for permission to take some people down. He had a number of acquaintances who had been crucified. He took three down who were not dead yet, and one of them actually wound up surviving. So it was a surprise to Pilate that the Lord Jesus was already dead. So he calls for the centurion to confirm that, and the centurion bears witness. Now, here we're getting back to what I said at the beginning. Mark emphasizes that Jesus was really dead. The centurion recognized his identity in the moment of his death, and now that same person is called upon to answer Pilate's question. Is he already dead? Did he die? And the centurion confirms it. So any concerns, any hesitation that we had over affirming that Jesus was genuinely dead, that his soul and his body were separated, that what was left on the cross was not the whole person Jesus, but was a corpse, that uncertainty should be done away with. Do you think the centurion was familiar with death? You think the centurion knew what things were like? And we remember from the Gospel of John, one of the soldiers had stabbed him in the side. And blood and water came out, demonstrating that he was already dead before he was even stabbed in the side. But certainly that wound would put paid to any concerns as well. So Pilate grants permission. Now think about the centurion for a moment. He participated in the crucifixion, whether he physically manhandled Christ or whether he just oversaw the soldiers who were doing it. But you couldn't get much closer to the crucifixion than Christ. And yet, when Christ died, the centurion recognized his true identity. And the first thing that he's called upon to do now is to bear witness to the reality of Christ's death. Isn't there a lesson there for us as well? Do we know who Jesus is? Well, then we too are called upon to bear witness. When we've recognized his identity, the reality of our preceding sin becomes irrelevant. It's not a reason not to say what we know. Now, this centurion had limited information. He could say, Jesus is the son of God. He could say, yes, he's dead. That's what he could say. But he said both of those things. How much more than that do we know about the Lord Jesus? And yet, is it not often true that we say even less? We know a lot more about Jesus. We know that he was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. We know that all things were made by him and through him and for him. We know that he's not just died. He's risen again. He's ascended into heaven. We know that he's coming again. We know that he's been exalted over every principality and power and every name that is named. We know all these things about him, but do we even say as much as the centurion did? 
He had way less information than you. But he bore witness. Well, with our wealth of information, how can we be silent? How can we not bear witness to Christ? You don't have to know everything, but just tell what you know. Pray for opportunities. Be alert for opportunities. And use those opportunities. Tell what you know. People really do need to know who Jesus is and what he has done. Well, then that brings us to Joseph of Arimathea. You can tell because we're dealing with personalities in the text. We're not going in order. So we dealt with the first couple verses and the last verse. We dealt with the centurion. And now we come to Joseph, who takes up the most space. One of the literary indications that Jesus is dead is that he's no longer a character. He's no longer doing anything. He can't. He's dead. So it's the people around who are active, who are carrying something out. And here we have Joseph of Arimathea. Now, we're told in Mark that he's a prominent council member. From that, we could deduce that he was a person of standing, of position, and of wealth within the community. And if we had any doubts about that, we could have that confirmed from the other Gospels. He was wealthy and prosperous. Now, Arimathea is not too far away, but it's not in Jerusalem proper. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. I think that's the meaning of a council member. But he had not gone along with their decision to crucify Christ. And now it says he gathered his courage. He took courage and went in. But before it says what he did, it tells us one more thing about him. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, this was a true Israelite. It was somebody who was looking for God to deliver. How clearly he understood that the kingdom of God had come in the person of Christ, we don't know. It may be that the death of Christ was clarifying for him, and that's why he took courage. It may be that he was feeling like his hopes were dashed by this, but he still wanted to show kindness. He wanted not to leave bodies hung up overnight, which was against the Jewish law, but He had a particular respect, a particular concern for Christ. We don't know, in other words, whether his faith at this point was strong and clear, whether it was dim and overshadowed, whether it was racked by so much doubt and sorrow that even Joseph himself couldn't have told you whether he really believed or not. But Mark, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is able to tell us that what was in his heart was a waiting for the kingdom of God and expecting that God would intervene to bring redemption. And Mark tells us that as something relevant for him taking courage. Now, of course, when he goes in and asks Pilate, that would require some courage because Jesus has been crucified under the title, the king of the Jews. You want to give him an honorable burial? Well, the Romans preferred that people who were crucified not be buried at all, that they have, to the disgrace of crucifixion, the disgrace of being consumed by vultures or dogs. So he might have been getting himself on the radar, put on a watch list for Pilate with this close identification with somebody who had been crucified as a political revolutionary. But of course, 
He's also going against the council of which he's a prominent member because they voted to crucify Christ. And now he's coming and providing Christ not just with a decent burial, but with a wealthy burial, with an honorable burial in his own family tomb, which he just recently purchased or had carved for himself, for his own use and the use of his family. The death of Christ was not an obstacle for the centurion to recognize his identity. The death of Christ was not an obstacle for the women to continue to watch, to love. And the death of Christ was not an obstacle. If anything, it seems to have been the catalyst for Joseph to take courage and do what he could. You would think it would work the other way. You would think that the death of Christ would drive people away from him. But that's not what happened here in Mark. And I don't think that's what happens in our own experience when we come to terms with the reality that Christ died and was buried. And we understand that Christ died and was buried for us. Does it make us less willing to be his witnesses? Does it make us less willing to be his servants? Does it make us less willing to follow him even if we are following him into suffering and death? The death of Christ is not a discouragement to Christian faith. The death of Christ is a source of courage for us. Your persecutors may kill you, but they already tried that with Christ. How did that work out for them? Did that keep Christ down? Being united to a Savior who died and was buried and rose again is wonderfully liberating. As Jesus said, don't fear those. All they can do is kill the body. What's the big deal? We are joined to a Savior who has overcome death. And this is one of the reasons Ursinus gives for Christ to be buried, so that we would no longer be afraid of the grave. Well, there's an application as well. There's an application to our boldness in serving Christ today, no matter what the opposition, no matter whose toes we might step on by serving him and bearing witness for him. But there's also an application to our own approaching end. The day is coming when you will be put in a box of some kind. This earthly life will be over. But you don't need to be afraid of that. It's a little box, relatively speaking, and it's put into a hole in the ground. But you don't need to be afraid of that. Christ has already gone there before you. He has already sanctified the tomb. And as he rested in the grave... You will rest. Your body will rest in the grave. Your soul will go to be with Christ. In terms of your experience, in terms of your consciousness, you will be better off right away. And in terms of your body, you won't lose out. Your body will rest until the day of resurrection. So there really is nothing for you to be afraid of. Let me make one more application as we conclude. Joseph of Arimathea bought fine linen, put Jesus into his own tomb. There was not a lot you could do for the corpse of Jesus. But what he could do, Joseph of Arimathea did, 
giving of himself, giving his own resources, giving his substance, giving his own tomb. How do we serve Christ? Do we serve the Lord with the leftovers? Do we serve the Lord with what we can spare once we've taken care of the important things? Or will we be like Joseph of Arimathea? Will we serve the Lord with the best, with all that we have? Will we do for Christ whatever we can, even if it's an unusual service? Joseph probably never expected to bury Jesus. Probably wasn't on his list of ways to serve. But dear people of God, opportunities come up. Do we rise to the challenge? Do we lay hold of them joyfully? Do we sacrifice what we have in order to serve the Lord? That should be the impact of the death of Christ on us. We see that was the impact of the death of Christ on Joseph. And he is held out here as an example for us. If you are waiting for the kingdom of God, don't wait passively. Look for those opportunities to serve the Lord and take them. Take them boldly. Take them joyfully. Amen.